I have a question. Can I ask you something? It's kind of tricky. Okay, so it's a question about Jesus. Or, or it's about Christians. Or churchy people. Maybe it's more about the church. I mean, it's not my question. Yeah, it's for a friend. Yeah, yeah, a friend. A distant relative who lives in France. No, 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 you, you wouldn't know them. You see, my kids asked me this question at bedtime the other night. What? We didn't ask him that. Well, it's for this guy at work, but he works in a different building. I, I really need you to, you know, tell me so I can tell him, you know? Asking for a friend. I'm asking for a friend. I'm just asking for my kids. <laughs> oh, you got to give it up for the kids. Those are really his sons, too. They look like him. I, I love it. Hey, welcome everybody who's joining online. West Tonka, Bush Lake. Glad we're together. If you're a guest today, might you be glad that you came. And uh, we're continuing with this series, um, Ask for a Friend. It actually got birthed out of a survey that we gave to you last fall, asking you to tell us what are your friends asking you, questions that they have or questions that you have. And we had over 800 of you participated, which let me just tell you, created a, a bit of a, an avalanche of trying to figure out how do we reduce that to the top six questions. So we looked at frequency and weight, all kinds of things, but the top of the top of the list is the question I'm addressing today. Why does the church judge? Why does the church judge me? People feel that. It's a hot topic. It was asked in a, a dozen different ways, and we're going to give energy to that today. And I just think we're mindful. And once you agree, in the last few years especially, people feel like the church or Christians are judging them, and they're speaking out loud about that. And so that's where we're going to go today, speaking onto that given question. It's a good question. And we all know what it feels like to be judged, don't we? It sucks. Can I say that in church? Don't judge me. <laughs> All right, because it does. I mean, it just hurts when somebody judges us and we just feel it deeply. But can we just do an inverse of that question? Have you judged anyone lately? It's quiet in the room. <laughs> because certainly we have and we do in simple ways. You judge the person who cuts you off in traffic or perhaps the offbeat person who isn't tuning into your social cues and you have judgment about that, or people who look different than you, or people who have opposing political views than you have, and there's judgment going back and forth related to it, or perhaps there's somebody that you feel um, and is deemed to live an immoral or a sinful life, and there's judgment that happens around it. A lot of judgment taking place. Carrie and I had dinner with dear friends this uh, past week, and the husband was telling a great story about his dad. I've never met him, but I, I would like to meet him. Just a sweetheart of a guy, loves God, just beautiful faith in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and he said that his dad was one day in his car driving along the way, and he stopped at a red light. The car ahead of him, the car had a sticker that says, honk if you love Jesus. Jesus. So he honked. And the person driving the car gave him the finger. It, it wasn't the nice finger. It was the bad finger. I don't know, he forgot that the sticker was on his car maybe or, but isn't that, he felt judged. And he responded to the feeling of judgment that I think is what's creating so much tension in our culture today. It's feeling judged and responding with this agitated kind of response. Well, Jesus said, the world will know we are Christians by our love. But I've been reading the research the last few years of how we're viewed as Christians and as the church. 
And uh, generally, people feel that we, are, that, that, that we are known more deeply by how we judge than by how deeply we love. And that's why people, I think, put this question on the survey to say, could we address this? In fact, I think there's this growing sentiment. I just heard it in a news program just a couple of weeks ago that I was listening to. And the conclusion of the, the news story was, I like Jesus, I just don't like Christians. And I was offended. <laughs> I felt judged. I'm just saying it's happening on both sides of the equation. And we're hard pressed to give energy and attention to it. We must do so because the, the need is so great. Well, first of all, I want to start by validating just the feelings. Why do people feel judged? Because I think there's, there's grounds for it. And you feel what you feel, right? How you feel is how you feel. Whether it's grounded in perception or whether it's grounded in truth, you feel what you feel. I think a few reasons why people are feeling judged. One is because of what the church and Christians believe. It may be different than those who are not part of the church and not part of Christian faith and what they hold as truth. They're not the same truths. And that creates a tension. And sometimes people who don't hold the same truth as those who come from the church, they feel like it's condescending to them. That somehow we're communicating a message that we're better than you are, we're more important than you are. Even if we're not trying to communicate it that way, it feels that way to them. And I can step into that personally as well. When I was first following Christ and I became a member, the very first church that I became a member of um, had a requirement that you abstain from alcohol and you had to sign on that. It was no big deal to me at all. That church is a great church. They have removed that requirement since, but at that time they had it. I was at my dad's home for an evening and he offered me a beer and I said no and he said why? And I said, well, I'm part of this church and I agreed to not participate in alcohol and he felt judged. It offended him. I didn't want that to be the case. It was not the intent at all, but it's what he felt. So you can see where I'm going here. There's a reason why people feel judged. Sometimes we have differing views. I'd rather not divide. I'd rather dialogue around our differing views, but it's even hard to do that today. The second reason, and I think probably the most more important reason, is how Christians speak about what they believe. Because we speak about what we believe in a way that makes people feel judged. This is the greater concern. In fact, the Barna Research Group, probably one of the most respected research groups in our country, just recently did um, a study on how people outside of the church view people inside of the church. And you can imagine, I'm just reading some of the conclusions they had. It's not always very flattering. Here's just a quote, one summary statement. Many Christians are more concerned with what they call unrighteousness than they are with self-righteousness. It's a lot easier to point fingers at the culture and its immoral choices than it is to confront Christians in their comfortable spiritual patterns. No wonder people are running from it. Ooh. Generally, people are feeling judged because of how we communicate what we believe, and that becomes part of the jugular of the issue we're gonna to address today. There's a third reason why people feel judged, and it's because of themselves or because of you, if you answered the question. I mean, you think about it. For most people, um, we live with an undercurrent of insecurity, and we're trying to process our lives, the decisions we're making, 
And sometimes we're dealing with our own tension around, is this the right thing or the wrong thing to do? And so I don't need anybody else judging me to put salt into an open wound when I'm just trying to figure out life myself. So sometimes people feel judged because they're afraid of somebody judging them for something they're already judging themselves over and trying to get a hold of. That comes into play. They're all merited kinds of tensions. It's real. The feelings are there. But the heart of my message simply is here. And I want to put it as a point of emphasis onto the screen. We don't judge people into life change. We love people into life change. When you leave here today, I want you to just embrace there's this teetering experience that we have. And it's like the, 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 the teetering has moved toward judgment in recent years. And we need to see that teeter move back into um, that spirit of love. And it's important that we step into it. So the question today really is, if judgmental is the classification that Christians are receiving, what do we as the church and Christ followers do about it? Fortunately, and this is the wisdom of Jesus from heaven to earth, knew that we would struggle with this issue of judgmenting, uh, judgmentalism. And so he just gets really clear. And I think today, for me, it was really helpful. And I pray when you leave here today, you go, wow, that was really helpful. And maybe you'll have some confessing to do, some praying to do. I hope so, I, because that's what I went through. If I went through it, I think you should too. So, <laughs> but God speaks to us from his word and the simplicity of it, it becomes so clear. And, and that's the direction I'm gonna go today. Starting with this thought that when you think about the scriptures, what are the first two um, most known scriptures inside the church and outside the church? In your mind, what would come to mind? Obviously, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. But there's a second one as well. It's Matthew 7, 1. Jesus says, do not judge. And those outside the church sometimes know that verse more than they know the John 3, 16 verse. Doesn't Jesus say, do not judge? And that becomes even a quoted statement inside the church. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this well-known verse. The verse is known, but not always the context. And that's part of our struggle today is how we read the Bible. In fact, I created an image of how we read the Bible today, which is more like this. <laughs> we redact the stuff that, there's just a lot of words on that page. But I like these words of Jesus. Do not judge. So we elevate that, and so people know that verse, but not always the context. Today, you're gonna leave knowing the verse in its context. And that will help us understanding what it is that Jesus means. So let's just start out with Matthew 7, 1. With his statement, Jesus says, do not judge. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? Let's start with what he does not mean. That is, Jesus does not prohibit making moral judgments. He's not telling us to stop discerning between what is right and what is wrong. We know that all of the scriptures speak about the moral judgments that he expects us to give energy to, the Ten Commandments, to keep these things before us. We also know in the context of Matthew 7, where it says, do not judge, Jesus himself instructs us to practice moral judgment in a couple of arenas, giving quite a bit of energy to one beginning in verse five, and the verses to follow say, pay attention to false teachers, because they teach a truth different than the truth of God. Well, how do we know it's different than the truth of God? By exercising moral judgment, by discerning between that which is right and that which is wrong. 
So clearly, we are in a place to look to God's word and bring God's word on that given front because we make judgments every single day. Think about it. No teacher would grade or be able to grade a student's performance if there was no judgment. No citizen would sit on a jury. Uh, No failed leader would be held to account. In fact, we wouldn't even say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and then I forgive you if we weren't discerning between right and wrong. It really impacts our everyday journey. So many people interpret Jesus as saying you can't judge someone um, for actions that are wrong, but that's not what Jesus is saying because we wouldn't be able to judge them for actions that are right. It's a both and. We're to exercise this discernment. So when Jesus says do not judge, he does not prohibit making moral judgments, discerning between right or wrong. So then what on the positive side does Jesus mean? Quite simply, Jesus does forbid a critical judgmental spirit. He's not saying don't discern between right and wrong. He's saying cultivate within you a spirit that is not um, condemning others, um, that is not making people feel small or lower than you or not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Just think about what Jesus said. He said, I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. So who are we to start condemning the world if Jesus himself did not? He's given us a pretty high standard here because our inclination is to condemn, to have a judgmental, critical spirit. But we're not to have that, that's what he's forbidding. Paul affirms this as well in Romans 14. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? He says, just stop it. Stop the contempt that you have toward people. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. There's a level playing field and we'll all be in that given place. J.C. Ryle, who is a great historic biblical scholar, 19th century, so he is an old dude who's been dead for a long time. I love these guys. And they have such wisdom and the clarity of thought. And how he unpacks Jesus' words here, it's a seven-layer cake, just tune into it. What our Lord means to condemn is a censorious and fault-finding spirit. In other words, in today's words, cancel culture. Stop it. Stop it. A readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference. A habit of passing rash and hasty judgments. A disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make worst of them. This is what the Lord forbids. Well, what if we don't make the worst of them, but we make the best of them? As Jesus does with us, we will move them toward loving Jesus. And what does Jesus do when you start to love Jesus? He pours his love on you to the end that he changes you and he transforms you. Let him bring the transforming work in your life as he does for me, as he does for you. And then we're living back into that rhythm of what God intends. And so Jesus does not prohibit us from making moral judgments, from discerning between right or wrong, from teaching the 10 commandments and the moral imperatives that you find in scripture. He does teach us to, and forbids us to moving into that place of judgmental, critical spirit that's condemning others and looking down upon them. That's the problem that Jesus is tackling 
in the context of that verse, do not judge. And it's a problem that needs to be tackled. Wouldn't you agree? So can we do this together? Can we look at what Jesus says with the second question, why shouldn't you judge others? And Jesus is so marvelous here because he unpacks it in a way that we can see it and understand it. And he actually gives us four really, really good reasons. And the first one is so simple. You're not the judge. Isn't that good? Just so simple. So you look at your neighbor and you say, you're not the judge of me right now. Just take a moment and do that with each other. Okay, it was just one sentence. I didn't ask for a paragraph. I could tell some of you really felt good. You've wanted to say that for months and I just gave you permission and you just let it out, right? Look again at the verse 7-1. It says, um, do not judge or you too will be judged. Well, if I myself am going to be judged, who's doing that judging? It's God. He, he's the one. And why is God doing the judging and not us doing the judging? Because um, we're not qualified. <laughs> can we just be clear? We're not qualified. That we can look at people, we don't know their story, we don't know their history, we don't know their extenuating circumstances, we don't know what they're going through in their life. We tend to see what's happening on the outside, not in the heart. And only Jesus sees that. And so Paul gives us this reminder. Uh, he affirms what Jesus is doing. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. To their own masters. Who's qualified to do the judging? It's God. Only he does it perfectly. We will always do it imperfectly. And so you have this simple reality. Why shouldn't you judge others? Right? Primarily because the first reason, you're, you're not the judge. And it's so good to know that you're not the judge. If that's the simple thing that he gives to us, he brings a sobering reason. Secondly, this is it. God will judge you the same way you judge others. This is difficult. This is sobering. We tend to err on the side of the extremes on this one. That is, some of you are just way too harsh on yourself. You're judging yourself all the time. And some of you are blind to the things that you should judge yourself around. And he's calling us to say, let God be the judge. Not you of yourself or you of other people is what he's saying. In fact, I think it's a really good idea that you carry a, a mirror around you. And many women naturally do that. They have a purse to do that. Guys are not exactly known for carrying a mirror around, but maybe we should after today. Put it in your car, have a mirror, not to look at your face, to look at your faith. And that's a harder thing to look into in the mirror, but we need it. And we find this provision in Matthew um, chapter seven. Again, we read for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So if you judge harshly, you will be judged harshly. And if you show mercy, you will be shown mercy. That we will be judged according to the way we judge others. And I love this about Jesus because he's such a great preacher. I would think Jesus is the finest preacher in all of history. Would you agree? You're wise people. He is. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount. It's a long sermon, by the way. It's a very good sermon. And good preachers repeat themselves over and over again. And that's what he does with this message. He re 
reinforces it over and again. You remember he says in the Beatitudes, those beautiful words, blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. And in the same sermon, he speaks about the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others who sin against us or those who have debts against us. So you find this, what we call at Westwood, if you're a guest, we call it the rhythm of life. That there is a rhythm to life that God created us to live in. That God gives, fill in the blank, mercy. That's just one example. We, with open hands, receive mercy. And once received, we, with open hands, give and show mercy. And then God receives glory, honor, and praise because we're living in his rhythm. And that's what he asks us to do. He invites us to do this. And I love the ways that it happens. And yet our struggle is to judge people um, in ways that we don't even know the whole story behind what they're going through. I was humored a little bit with a story that I read recently about a woman who was at the airport taking a flight and she bought a book to read and cookies to eat and she found a seat while she's waiting for the plane. She begins, she opens up her book, she begins to read and just one seat over, there's a guy next to her, one seat over and he starts to fumble with cookies that are on the seat between them. And she's having a moment while she's reading. She doesn't know what to say. She's uncomfortable. He's fumbling with the cookies in the seat between us. And to her surprise, he takes a cookie and eats the cookie. And she's taken back by the gall of this guy to do this, not knowing what to say. She was a little embarrassed. She thought, I'm going to eat one of the cookies. So she takes a cookie and eats it. So he gets the message, bug off from my cookies. And so after a period of time, they're sitting there. She goes, oh, I think he got the message. And then suddenly he reaches down and he takes another cookie and he eats it. And she's sitting there. Oh, she's steaming now, this guy. I cannot believe he's doing this. Well, she's not going to let him eat all of her cookies. So she takes a cookie and eats it, thinking, get the drift, buddy. And have another pause. Oh, finally he got it. No, he reaches down and takes the last cookie. He breaks it in half, puts half on the seat between them, and gets up and leaves. I mean, she is steaming. She wants to say something. She doesn't know what to say. So she just gets up mad when the announcement comes to board. She boards the plane. Getting ready to sit down, opens up her purse to take out a tissue. And what does she see in there but her unopened bag of cookies? She was eating his cookies. She had judged too harshly. And he was much too kind. And that tends to be our reality, doesn't it? This is the picture we have. The second reason Jesus gives that you shouldn't judge is because God will judge you in the same way you judge others. And the third reason why that we ought not judge um, is, I'm gonna take a little more time on this. If the first one is simple and the second one is sobering, this one is just hard. You must judge yourself first. Get yourself together, Jesus is saying. You know, the psalmist says, know thyself or know yourself. Know who you are. Take that mirror and don't look at your face. Look at your faith on the inside. That's the picture you have here. And it's important that we do that because of what he says. Take a look at the next verse. He says, oh, and you gotta help me on this one too because I told you great preachers repeat themselves Jesus does this as you look at the context of that verse that everybody knows, but they don't know the context. So I've helped you out. You're gonna say the part that's underlined in yellow so there's no mistake as to what you're saying. Did you follow that? Join me. You do the underlined part. Did I? <laughs> Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in Verona? 
That's number one. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Three times, three verses in your own eye. You can see the weight now. Jesus used emphasis to say these other two reasons are important, but this third reason is of utmost important. Pay attention to it. And it's important that we pay attention to it because we're good at judging others more so than we are judging ourselves. And he gives two helpful perspectives or insights to why it's important for us to get ourselves together to judge ourselves first before we start taking a look. And the first one of these is really important. He says, because you know your own sins better than you know someone else's sins. And that makes sense to me. I don't know your sins, right? And you don't know my sins, but I know my sins, and I hope you know your sins. That's what Jesus is saying here. And the weight of it is so powerful. If you take a look at the verse, what it says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Can I just say this? Jesus is a really funny guy. You know, we laugh and we have humor because we're created in the image of God. And this is a very funny picture. It's first century humor, so it's a little harder for me to connect it with you. But let me see if I can give it a shot. A plank is a big piece of wood. And it oftentimes is the same word used for the beam that holds a house together. It's also the same word that's used for a battery ram, which is just a ridiculous, crazy image. It's almost a cartoonish character of what's taking place. And he's saying, why do you, by the way, can I say a battery ram can be three feet wide and 30 feet long? So you get the picture. You can see almost the cartoon. Why are you so not concerned about the plank that's in your own eye. It's, it's a battery ram and you still have the gall and the insight to look and see the speck of dust in the other person's eye. I'm telling you, his audience laughed at that. Um, it's hard to, that's the best I could do. You get the idea of it. It's just a ridiculous image that Jesus is calling out here. And the reason that Jesus pictures our sins as a battery ram, as this big plank, and that another person's sin is but like a speck of dust is because we know our sins more than we know theirs. That is, we know their sins this much. And they know our, and I know my sins this much. And therefore, I'm called to pay attention to what's inside of me more than what's inside of them. And so very early on in my Christian journey, I had several mentors as I was learning to grow in love with Jesus. I'm so grateful for them. And one of them said, Joel, you are wise to pause and identify throughout the different chapters and seasons of your life your top five sins. Where are you most tempted to sin? Which, by the way, Joel, those temptations are different in your 20s than they are in your 60s. They change. So it's a lifelong journey and a discipline of doing that. Well, I, I, I do this, and I did it recently, um, where I identified my top five sins of this season and time and place. And it's none of your business what they are. <laughs> because it's not about me. This is about you. <laughs> so what are your top five? 
it would be a good practice for you to think about your own top vulnerabilities to that. And I'll give you one because it's not just listing them in a journal. These are my five temptations. No, it's what am I going to do about it so I can guard my heart from those temptations. So I'm going to share one of mine that has been with me hovering, and I hate to say this, for several years. Some temptations to sin hover a long time. Would you agree with that? And this particular sin is something I knew that I had to get a hold of or could wreak havoc and I could lose joy in my life. And I wasn't going to let that happen. As you know, we've been in a cultural convulsion for the last several years. And I don't think the church has been on the best behavior, but I don't think humanity has been on the best behavior by and large. And so the sin that I identified is the spirit of defensiveness that rises up in us because that's a challenging thing. So you know what it is when you start to feel defensive? It's like it goes from your gut up to your chest, into your throat, and you're just, oh, you're ready to throw a grenade, you're ready, whatever it is. You can feel it. But one of the compelling character qualities of Jesus is that he was non-defensive. He took the hits. He took the beatings because he didn't need to explain himself. He was at peace with the Father's will and how he was living I've wanted to be like Jesus. Our discipleship definition here is to be in love like Jesus. It's a worthy um, compass for life. And so I shared this even in January with you as we were approaching Lent, that my fast for the Lent season was, Lord, I fast from a spirit of defensiveness that I might feast on the blessing of goodness. Because when you're defensive, what happens? You look inside, don't you? You look at yourself. And then you can't see what God is doing around you. So you can't be like God. Can you see why that's a sin I need to get a hold of? And I've been growing in it. It's just so freeing when you can grow in that place. But it starts by identifying. You have to know your own sins better than, you know your sins better than you do the other person. So you want to step into that. See, when you minimize the plank that's in your own eye, you maximize the speck that's in the other person's eye. But when you maximize and magnify the sin that's in your own life, you will minimize the speck of the others because you know yourself and your sin more than you know the others. And then there's a second reason here. Jesus says, first, judge yourself because you know your sins better than you know someone else's. And then second, judge yourself because, he says it clearly, it's hypocritical to care about other sins more than you do your own. You haven't even dealt with your own stuff, but you're willing to deal with their stuff. Look at the verse in verse four. It says, how can you say to the brother, let me take the speck out of your eye like you really care, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You haven't dealt with your own stuff to be able to have the grounds to start dealing with the stuff of other people and the sins of others in their journey. So why is it hypocritical? Because we're pretending like we care about the sin of the other person when we don't. That's a little harsh we feel from Jesus, but he's speaking truth. I mean, just think about it. When you're calling out the speck of sin in somebody else's eye, are you doing it with a motivation to honor God and to help them grow from that given place? Or are you more doing it from a place of motive where you can communicate that you're a little better than, more important than, more righteous than? We tend to lean into that camp. We tend to take people down so we can lift um, ourselves up. And Jesus says, do not judge because you're not the, the judge here on this side of it. You have to judge yourself. Pay attention to your motives. Okay, let me just review. Jesus says, do not judge because you're not the judge, because God will judge you the way you're judging others, that we must judge ourselves first. And then we get to the fourth and my final comments come into this, that God calls you to help others rather than 
judge them. I look at this and I think, wow, what a beautiful Lord we have that he's first concerned with help. Take a look again at the verse. It says, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I just love Jesus, don't you? He's always concerned about helping. He's not trying to put people down. He's trying to save people. He's trying to move them toward what love is like. And you just feel the tenderness of that given appeal that you'll see clearly. It won't even be confusing to you. You'll know what to do to bring help to them. Don't ignore the speck in their eye. That would be a horrible thing to do. If somebody's in a troubled place and they're sinking, you, know, you want them to find help and hope. And so this is reinforced. We find it from the Apostle Paul again, or from A.W. Pink. I love the, this picture of his interpretation of the passage. If I really have my brother's welfare at heart, then love itself requires that I wink not at his sins, but rather endeavor to save him from them, just as much as it perceived the first wisp of smoke issuing from one of his windows. Why wait till his house be half burned down before giving the alarm? We step in to bring this beautiful help along the way. So something happens, friends, when we love God the way God has loved us, and we know how much he's loved us, it brings a humble helpfulness. And that's what Paul reinforces for us when he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit, spirit of love, should restore that person gently. And so how do we help bring that kind of correction? Prayerfully, carefully, gently. And with love. I love this verse. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. You have to love that verse that love covers a multitude of sins. Let me rephrase it. That love covers a multiple of your sins. In many churches, there would be an amen after that. Okay? So I say it again, because love covers a multitude of your sins. Oh, aren't you glad for that reinforcement of the teaching of Jesus? I know you felt that on the inside. You just needed permission. Come out a little bit with it. It's okay. And so we find that love becomes that. Billy Graham said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge, and it's our job to love. I can go with that. The fourth reason to not judge, God calls you to help others rather than to judge them. I need to wrap up. I really want to have lunch with you and keep going. But I just want to share one final thought. Carrie grew up on a hobby farm. Some years ago, um, a storm brought down a lot of trees. Two of her brothers went up to help her dad clear um, the trees for wood in their fireplace, etc. And so they brought sledgehammers and they brought chainsaws to go help their dad. And um, I've learned two lessons about chainsawing. The first is chainsawing is addictive. <laughs> Everybody who's had a chainsaw in your hand, you know what I'm talking about. You wanted to take that one branch off and the tree's half naked. <laughs> and then you, you go to the next tree and all of a sudden you could fell every tree on your property a lot and start looking at your neighbors and go, that one needs some attention right now too. <laughs> There's an addictive nature to it because you feel important and powerful with a chainsaw. And secondly, chainsaws um, aren't just addictive, they're dangerous, right? You can have a kickback from a chainsaw 
even a sledgehammer. That happened to her brother as they were doing this work. He slipped on ice, chainsaw, sledgehammer came, hit him right here between the eyes, opened up his forehead. 17 stitches later, I'm just saying it hurt. It hurt him. And I think there's an analogous picture there with judging, that judging is addictive behavior. You start to saw off a piece of a person that you don't like, and all of a sudden, you take them down completely, and you go on to other people. It's just you feel important and powerful, and all of a sudden, you can fell a whole forest of friends and their reputations by judging. And it's dangerous, as we've learned. It will come back and kick you. Because the way of Jesus is to be our way. So how are you doing? Are you consumed with a spirit of love to help people in their weakness? Or are you concerned with a spirit of judgment, of criticizing, of condemning, that it makes you even anxious, but you keep doing it? I think the Lord has spoken to you today from the mouths of his son, Jesus the Christ. And I would say, listen to what he says and act on it. Would you stand and let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, what a gift you give to us, a reminder that we don't judge people into life change. We love people into life change because we've been loved into life change because of you and because of Jesus who's come on our behalf and you're teaching us new ways, better ways, more beautiful ways to live. And Lord, I can't help but think that Someone here right now online at West Tonka at Bush Lake are in this place where a person has come to mind or an anxiety is within or a spirit of criticism has just been dominating too much and it's blinded us to the cascading love of Christ that is for us. So maybe some confessing needs to happen. And friends, I just give you a moment. Would you just take a moment? If there's a name of a person or something within you that just needs to go at the foot of the cross, you just name it in this moment. Lord, we need a lot more time than that. So may we take this invitation home with us as we go. And just remember that you came to us and set us free by mercy, by cascading love, by forgiveness. And for that, we give thanks. May we honor you in how we speak, how we think about others in our life. To your honor and glory, we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.